0: You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as a family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. just kind of want to pick up in our series on worship and uh, kind of share with you some some thoughts going forward, even as we talk about worship. And so today the title is Modeling Worship, and I want to read to you a story Um, that happens in 2 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, The scriptures will be behind me as well. But this is a really interesting story. So I'll give you a little background. What's happened here is David is now the king of Israel. And in that meantime, there, there had been some issues, there had been some wars, some battles, where the tabernacle of Moses was still there, but the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle of Moses had been separated. If you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant is, it's the, the kind of symbolized presence of God. It was a literal, you know, if you've seen uh, Indiana Jones, you should know what the Ark of the Covenant is, okay? So it's this, this thing that was built, and it was this symbolistic idea that the presence of God rested there. And it, and it really was true for that period. And they had put this in the Tabernacle of Moses. The Tabernacle of Moses was this tent structure. Um, that was built when they were in the, you know, desert time, 40 years wandering around. And wherever they went, they would take down the tabernacle first, and then they would set up the tabernacle of Moses in the new location. And they'd bring the presence of God with them. And they would actually put the Ark of the Covenant at the front of wherever they led. It was this idea that wherever we go, we want God to go before us. And, and that was the tradition of what we saw with the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle of Moses. Well, in history, those had gone separated. And the tabernacle of Moses or the, the Ark of the Covenant had really just kind of been out there, really actually at someone's house. Now, that's an interesting thought. Man, imagine if the presence of God in that type of form just ended up in your home. And it would literally move around a couple of times where they had attempted to bring it back. And even some crazy story happens where someone dies in the process because they touched it and they weren't supposed to touch it. And so they ended up just putting it in this, this man's house for some years. Well, David comes to this place where he realizes, I want the presence of God in the city of David, they call it, or Jerusalem. This We want God's presence on, in our home. And so we see this moment where he makes a decision, and that's where we're going to pick up the story. He's making this decision, we're going to go and get the Ark of the Covenant. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, and we're going to start in verse 12. So it says, Then King David was told, The Lord has blessed Obed Edom's household in everything he has because of the ark of God. So, so listen, it was at this guy's house. His name was Obed-Edom, and he was being blessed because the ark of God was there. The Ark of the Covenant was there. And so David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. So they've kindly finally made up their mind, we're going to bring this back no matter what. And it says he did it with a great celebration. It says, after the men who were carrying the ark of God, or the ark of the Lord, had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. The NLT will say this, wearing a priestly garment. But a lot of other versions will just say this, wearing a linen ephod. And it says, so David and all the people of Israel brought up the Ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and blowing of ram's horns. So I want to just make sure we understand this picture. So the presence of God symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant had been separated really from the center of Israel, from Jerusalem, for a very long time. And so there's this moment where there's this huge celebration taking place. And David has decided, we're bringing the ark back, and I'm going to, you know, he does this act of worship, the sacrifice of these animals, that's how they did it back then. And then he, he says they, they start to really worship. They, they blow the ram's horns, and they're playing instruments. And it says he begins to dance. Now, if you look into the, the story of this, he really ends up dancing wildly. And we're going to get to a part of the story because uh, it was almost a shameful idea of how he acted. Now, it says in our versions of the NLT, the New Living, it says a priestly garment. Others would say a linen ephod. I want you to know what a linen ephod was. I put it in your notes. But it says the linen ephod mentioned here was likely just a simple portion of cloth used to cover the loins. So now just picture, he's wearing underwear. This is the situation. He's wearing underwear. For some reason, he just, he gets basically flagrant with his worship. And he's not wearing what he's supposed to be wearing. He's not acting like a king. He's not even wearing all the priestly garments that should be. This is just one piece of a priestly garment. If you go to Leviticus, um, there's literally a whole set of laws that talks to the priests about wearing these because when they go up the altar, it would be shameful for someone to notice your under parts. Literally, the Levitical law says this. Sometimes you you read Levitical law and you just realize they needed a parent to tell them not to do dumb things. And so they would wear these dress-like clothes, and when they'd go up the altar, they were exposing themselves, and so God literally writes it in the law, you need to have a linen ephod on so you're not exposing yourself before people. This is the part that he's wearing. But he's not wearing everything else he's supposed to be wearing. So let's go on with the story. It says, as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul. This is really interesting to me. Do we know who Michael, the daughter of Saul, is anybody? Anybody know who it is? We know she's the daughter of Saul. This is his wife. I find it interesting that it doesn't say David's wife. But it says, Michael, the daughter of Saul. When I read this, I think to myself, if you have started referring to your wife as the daughter of someone else instead of your wife, there's probably already something wrong. Like, oh, that's so-and-so's daughter. No, aren't you married to her? Yes. <laughs> he, he, the, the scriptures literally refer to her not as David's wife in this moment, but as, as literally just the daughter of Saul. Now, the daughter of Saul... Maybe doesn't feel all that bad, but Saul now has not a good reputation. Saul was the previous king who God kind of's presence left Saul and, and Saul tried to kill David, if you know any of this story. And so to just label her as the, the, the daughter of Saul was purposely done in the scripture here. So it says, David, or the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping, And dancing before the Lord. Some of the versions actually say twirling. Because what they knew was that he'd be spinning in circles. Can you imagine this? If I wasn't all dressed up this morning, I would try to represent it for you. But my clothes are too tight. Aren't you glad I'm not just wearing an ephod? And it says that he was dancing before the Lord and she was filled with contempt for him. She's watching the king of Israel, her husband... Dancing, not clothed properly, before the Ark of the Covenant, celebrating the presence of God coming back in. It says she was filled with contempt. Now, I don't know if you understand the word contempt. It's not a simple idea of disappointment. It's not an idea of where they were just like cringed. You know, I don't know if you have kids that are 14, 15. My son says every five seconds, that's cringy, Dad. I guess that just means I'm not cool anymore. And so this isn't just this simple cringe factor. It says she was filled with contempt. It means that she actually began to hate him. That she actually kind of let something soak into her where she was angry and filled with hatred towards David for how he was acting. And it says, verse 17, they brought the ark of the Lord and they set it in its place inside the special tent David had prepared for it. So here we're going to begin to realize that there's now a new resting place for the presence of God. So pre this moment, everything that was kind of labeled as where the presence of God would be was in this thing called the Tabernacle of Moses that I talked about. But now what you're going to see from here on through Scripture and even in the New Testament, there's this referencing back to this tent or this tabernacle, the Tabernacle of David. And so David actually takes the Ark of the Covenant and now listen, the Tabernacle of Moses still existed and he decided, I'm not putting it back there. This is really interesting. But he says, I want to make a new tent. And this tent's going to be a little bit different. And you know where he put it? Right next to his house. Right next to where David lived. He put the tabernacle, it's called the tabernacle of David, the tent where they were going to put the Ark of the Covenant. And so it says they brought this Ark of the Lord, and they set it in place inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings... And peace offerings to the Lord. When he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. And then he gave to every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people returned to their homes. When David returned home to bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. She said in disgust, How distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. So she's angry. It says, David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above, now this is maybe a little vindictive, who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me, And this is the New Living, it says, as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord, so I celebrate before the Lord. Now in the ESV it would say this, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his houses to appoint me as prince over Israel. That's the actual translation of the word, in New Living it says leader, in the ESV where they're they're taking a more literal translation of the word it says, who appointed me prince over Israel, the people of the Lord And I will celebrate before the Lord. I find this very interesting because he wasn't the prince, was he? He was the king. But if we go back further in scripture, what you find is that when God was leading the people of Israel in the the desert time and in those 40 years, and even when Joshua takes over as the leader of the people, Joshua Moses was never their king. He was just their leader. And Joshua leads them into the promised land. And all these years pass. And what happens is we see Israel start to look outside of themselves. And they notice that every other nation has a king. And if you read in the scripture, it says they began to grumble. It means they they kind of were talking gossip all the time. And they're saying, why don't we have our own king? And they actually go to Samuel who's the prophet, the one who speaks for God. And they say, Samuel, give us a king. And Samuel reminds them and actually gives them a, a prophetic word from the Lord. And this is the word. He says "That it says from God, you won't have a king because I will be your king. And you see, from, from the really beginning of this, God was meant to be our king, the one whom we bowed before. Because, you see, royalty and kingship, was this sense of authority where you would be bowing before them. And God never wanted us to bow before other men. But yet they wanted to be like every other kingdom. They said, give us a king. And and what's funny is it says God relents. He gives in. He ends up giving them a king. Now, first they pick Saul. We know that that choice wasn't very great. Eventually Saul, things kind of go awry. and, And then we see David come on the scene where Samuel goes to this house, and all the boys are not the ones, and David's just this little shepherd boy, and David becomes this king, this man after God's own heart. But the truth is, there was never supposed to be a king. And I love that in this moment, when he's being challenged for how he acted unkinglike, like he kind of says, I'm not a king anyway. I'm just a prince. And there's a lot happening in these scriptures that really matter to us that really kind of matter about how we approach God in worship. You see, David was kind of this forethought idea. He was showing us a new way that was going to come. You see, in the Levitical law, the only people who could enter the presence of God were the high priests. Not even all the priests could actually get into the place that was called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And in the In the um, tabernacle of Moses, there was this very thick curtain that separated the most holy place from all the other places in the tabernacle. And when we see the temple that gets built after the tent of David or after the tabernacle of David, we see this curtain restored where they put the Ark of the Covenant back into this holy place and only the high priests could go in there. And only after they did all these crazy rituals to cleanse themselves and, and be ready and prepared to go in there. History actually says that the priests were never quite sure if they had done it right enough, so they would tie a rope to the ankle of the high priest who went in, just in case he died, so they could pull his body out. But you see, it was never supposed to be that way. The Holy of Holies was never supposed to be some place that only a certain group of people could enter. And what's funny is there's this time period with David where God allows them to break that old rule system and almost foreshadow the new rule system that's going to come with Jesus. Because, you see, people could come freely into the tent of David. In fact, the the history shows that David spent many mornings. He would just go in on his own in the Holy of Holies, and he would spend time with the presence of God, and he would write his psalms in there, and he would worship in there by himself, and he would act almost as if he was a priest but he wasn't, not technically a priest. And then we see him acting as a priest in this moment where he is actually in front of the Ark of the Covenant, dancing wildly before the Lord, wearing at least one piece of priestly garment. And then later calls himself a prince. And it's this foreshadowing idea, we're going to read this scripture at the end, where God calls all of us a royal priesthood. And there's a reason those words really matter in Christianity, a royal priesthood. Because if we don't understand what God has called us, then it's hard for us to understand how we can come into the presence of God looking the way we do. You see, I think this is funny because I'm not sure that we can make a good argument that David was appropriately dressed and it was totally okay for him to just be wearing underwear. I'm not sure it was. But what I see is a God who doesn't care in the moment. A God who says, no matter how you come, if you worship me with all your heart, that's all that matters. A God who watches David just in an undistinguished manner. Another scripture says he doesn't even care if he humiliates himself. That he comes to worship before God in this celebratory, extravagant way, even looking in an unashamed way. And God doesn't judge him for it, only people do. It's why I think that when people come into our church, I hope they don't care the way they're dressed, the way they look, how many tattoos they have, or whatever other things that we might think are judgments from Christians. Because the reality is God is just looking for someone who will worship him in spirit and in truth like we talked about last week. And David was the kind of one of the first examples we see of this. Who just bears himself. I, I think there's some symbolism here. He just bears himself. Is there anything more vulnerable than being naked? I mean, it's everybody's worst nightmare, right? We've all had those dreams of standing in front of a crowd and realizing we forgot to put our pants on or whatever it is, right? There's this like literally intrinsic fear of like being naked in front of someone as i get older i like to wear shirts now when i swim cuz my kids refer to me when i go swimming with them with no shirt cuz i don't think they judge me but they do they call me white belly cuz it's true <laughs> Emma sticks her belly out real far and she goes white belly And I'm like, yeah, dad bought here. But there's nothing more vulnerable than when we expose ourselves like this. And I think there's some symbolism. I'm sorry. There's some symbolism in this place where David has just bared his whole life before God. And what he corrects her in is this. Not that he didn't act like a king should act, but that he was the son of a king. That's why he says he's a prince. You see, David knows who he is. He knows he's the son of God. He's the son of the king. And this adopted son, Romans calls it. And so he bears his whole life and he reminds her, I wasn't doing it for you. I was doing it before the Lord. You see, when we come in worship, it's only before the Lord. It's not for each other. It's not even for being on a stage. It's not for any other reason than before the Lord. Before the Lord. Michael, she goes on and says, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls, like any vulgar person might do. Now, now you know, for the for the royalty of that day, they would have servants all the time, right? And there were these servant girls, and I actually wanted to understand, who are these servants? Is she referring to someone specifically, because it just feels like this awkward thing, like who are these people that Michael's referring to, And and it was common for the king and the queen, to have young girls who would take care of basically everything that was going on, and for they would be young. They would probably have been in the 10- to 15-year-old range. And I thought this was interesting, not because he was exposing himself to them, but because what he says after this. So it says, David retorted to Michael, he says, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father. He appointed me as prince of Israel, the people of the Lord. And I want to jump into verse 22. The new living, it starts by saying this, Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this. Even to be humiliated in my own eyes. So he literally says, I don't care how I look when I worship. And the ESV, the second half of the verse in the ESV writes it this way. And I just like the second half said in the ESV differently. It says, but by the female servants you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. I thought this was an interesting notion that he was defending himself, saying, actually, the way that I acted today before those female servants you're bringing up, I'm going to be held in honor. And I think there's something happening here. And the reason I even titled today is Modeling Worship, that David knew, first, that he was first and foremost above all else, dancing before the Lord. But he also knew that everyone was watching. He knew an entire kingdom was watching what he did in that moment. And he chose to model worship in possibly the most extravagant way that we see described in the Bible at all. Completely bared himself, dancing and twirling, shouting and instruments are playing. There's this wild celebration going into the Holy of Holies and sacrificing animals, all of which he didn't have the technical right to do. And he bears himself before everybody and he knows they're watching. And I think there's a reason because he wanted to model a different way of worshiping God. What's actually interesting is for the whole period of time that the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant remained in the Tabernacle of David, The only two times that uh, there was a sacrifice of animals recorded was right there at the beginning when David did it. After that, they suspended it. They They weren't actually performing the sacrifices on the altar like they were supposed to do in Levitical law. And I think, again, it's this foreshadow of God saying that was just this temporary understanding. But he actually suspends it because there's this place this period of years in the ark of of or the tabernacle of david where the presence of god is just there for free that you could come before him that you could worship him that you could actually be the royal priesthood and david actually showed us what that looked like and then decided that not just showing us what it looked like he wanted to model it for the people and i think we're called to do the same thing that there's a there's a worship sense in all of us that we're supposed to first come before the Lord and be extravagant. It's If you didn't listen to the first message from Pastor Danny Schultz, my friend that came from Spokane, you need to listen to that. Because there's this idea of understanding what our praise and our singing and our songs are supposed to mean to God. And even how we're supposed to worship God. There's a how. And then then the why of it, because God is looking for someone who will bear their lives vulnerably and actually, in posture of our life, bow before him and be true worshipers. But one of the side effects of us being true worshipers is that we're supposed to be modeling for the next generation. We're supposed to be showing the next generation what it really looks like to worship. Now I know that when people come in here, on Sundays and they're not used to uh, non-denominational or a charismatic church, or especially if they come from a, a very traditional background, maybe Catholic or Episcopal or any of those, they come into our service and they're just like, what's happening? Why are those people up front raising their hands? Why is that person shouting yes, amen in the crowd? Why is the band so loud? Why is this happening? And, and, the, and there's this idea that sometimes we have to be a little more careful with how we act so that people come in here can feel comfortable. And, and there's a truth to that. I want people to understand what we're doing. But I'll tell you this. First and foremost, we're here before God. First and foremost, we want to come with exuberant praise. And I really think that if people see us worshiping truly before God, it doesn't matter how kind of weird or unfamiliar it might feel, it's going to feel more real than anything else. It can feel more real than us just pulling a hymn book out and singing some rote words that we're not even thinking about anymore. But when we come with true worship hearts, I think that people will see that and say, what is different about this person? What's different about this place? God is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and truth. Who will worship him in an exuberant way. Now please don't ever show up in just your underwear. I will throw you out. I will draw the line. <laughs> but can we be a people who worships Him truly and models for the next generation what it's like to worship? So, because of this, I want to actually—you can clap, sure. I want to—I want to uh, I kind of announce a shift we're doing. So, probably for the last oh man, at least 10 to almost 15 years, we have had kids' church um, that starts immediately upon arrival. You can come with your kids and they get checked in and they go down and, and they would have... Traditionally, right now, some worship videos that we play, and then there's teaching and classes. And and really, we're trying to grow our kids up to know God. It's not a babysitting service at all. We're there literally to literally give them kind of a bite-sized portion of what God wants to speak and how God wants to shape them. But recently, we've begun to have a discussion about whether we've been really modeling worship well. And it actually came from one of our leaders who was, at a worship night we were doing and her kids were here with her and she was lifting her hands and one of her kids was surprised to see her lifting her hands. And it kind of created this discussion where we realized our kids don't see us worship. We worship here, they worship down there. Or that's just chaos running sometimes (laughs) down there. And then when they turn to be 17, 18 years old, They're coming into our service or maybe bridge time. They're coming to our service. And they don't understand the atmosphere of worship we want to create. And so we've actually had a long discussion about this. Our leaders, our elders, we've decided to shift where we're going to bring our kids back into worship with us. (laughs) Now, for you young parents, you're going, what? Because that's how I was when we first started talking. I'm going, my kids sitting in worship? But the truth is, it's a good challenge. It's going to be this good tension. Now, listen, for us, for those of you who maybe your kids have gone on in life or you don't have kids or you've forgotten what kids are really like, sorry that happens to you, just so you know. If you're over the age of 15, your kids are grown and gone, you've already begun to forget what kids are like. Okay? They're loud, they don't listen to you, they're noisy. Sometimes they aren't doing what they're supposed to do. That's all normal kid behavior. And so there's a part of us that we're going to have to be willing to have a little more chaos on a Sunday morning, believing that we're going to model before our next generation what it means to be true worshipers. And so we're going to have kids in here a lot more than we've ever seen. Now, we're still aware of the difficulties. We're aware that someone might come in here with maybe a a single parent who has two or three young kids, and it's going to be really hard. This is what I want to say. Be a community in those moments. Help someone with their kids if they need some help. Now, we also understand that little kids are impossible. So infant and toddlers, nurseries, are going to still be open right from the get-go. And we're always going to encourage you. If your kid is struggling, you can just go out and come back in whenever. It's okay. What we've decided is that kids are going to join us from 9 o'clock to 9.25. Now, worship isn't over by 9.25, but we thought 25 minutes is a good stretch for them. So 9 to 9.25, and what you're going to see is a slide that comes on the screen that says, Kids Church is now released. And so your kids are going to be able to go back. But what we're hoping is going to work out, and we've been working with the system that we have, is that even as you come into church before church starts, you can still check your kids in. And then when they're released, most of them, if if they're okay, if you're okay with it, and they can kind of walk themselves out, they can walk themselves out, and the teachers will actually have a secondary roster check-in. The system actually already has this. So there's a secondary check-in that will say, okay, they were checked in with their parents, but now we've checked them into their class. That way we can still do the stuff where we keep them safe. We know who's in there. We know who's not supposed to be in there. And so the, pa- the teachers will all be waiting for them in the lobby, and they'll be checked in, and they'll go to their classes at 925. Now, we won't be doing some big thing about it every Sunday where someone gets up and reminds you, hey, 925, your kids can go. You'll see a slide up there. And so we're going to do a number of things that hopefully kind of work in between, where if, you are, if you're a parent and you're struggling with your kids in service, we get it. It's okay. Your kids are not bad kids because they're noisy. All right. My kids are the noisiest humans I think have ever been created. Probably because I'm kind of noisy. But it's okay. And so we want, but for us, this is what we believe. We want to model worship. You know, I, I think about growing up here, and, and I spent most of our time not in these chairs. They were much less comfy than these ones that in those days. And I remember watching my parents worship. I remember watching the people around me worship. And it became this commonplace way for me to be a part of it. And so even there were years when I walked away from God and then I came back. It wasn't even hard for me to come back into it because I understood what worship was supposed to be like. And sometimes worship is just this, a choice. It's not always a feeling. It's not always where you're the only one in the room and everybody else is gone. Sometimes it's just a choice to to worship, to lift our hands, to sing these words. And so this is going to start at the beginning of June. Um, we're not going to start it next week. We're going to give you a few weeks, if your families, to be thinking about it, be talking with your kids. We're going to start talking about it with the kids um, down in classes between now and the beginning of June. But the first, I think it's June 4th, the kids will be with us in worship for the first 25 minutes. So we're excited to do that. Um, believing that really we want to see the next generation be true worshipers. So I want to end today with a scripture. Maybe the worship team can come up or someone who can play for me. And I want to go to 1 Peter 2. This is one of my favorite scriptures. I've quoted this so many times in so many different messages because this is something, this is a scripture that if I was to say you want a memory verse, this is one you should memorize. This is one that should shape how you view Christianity. Christianity how you view yourself in God's eyes and how God views us and even part of what we're called to do. So 1 Peter 2.9, this is Peter writing and he says, but you are not like that. He's talking about others that have stumbled and fallen away. He says, but you're not like that for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. You are royal Priests, a royal priesthood, that God has made you royal priest. Now here's the thing I want to make sure you understand. The only thing that makes you a royal priest is this. Grace. Grace. The grace that God, that Jesus paid for on the cross, that bridged the gap between us and God. There's nothing you could do or not do to achieve royal priesthood status. You become a son of God, this adopted son and daughter of God that we see spoken about in Romans. As soon as we receive the grace Jesus gives us on the cross. But at the same time, which makes us royalty, right? We're, we're princesses and princesses. We're these sons and daughters. We have this royal status. But it's not just that we're now a part of the family of God. We're now a part of the priesthood of God. And the priesthood is really important to understand first priests had access to the presence of god but what the priests were really there for was this to help lead others into the presence of god there's a whole the levites were literally put there to help the entire nation of israel understand how do you worship god how are you supposed to live how are you supposed to look as a christian priests aren't there for themselves they're there for others Royalty is kind of this, oh, I just belong to this family, and I have this intrinsic part, and I'm a part of the community. That's part of it. But if we don't take on our priesthood part, then we never step into the call that God has on our life. And the call God has on our life is this, to lead others in a lifestyle of worship. To lead others in what it looks like to be a Christ follower. To lead others into the presence of God. This is what it means to be a royal priest. A holy nation, God's very own possession. And Peter says it this way. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. Can we stand this morning? As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. God wants to show others what he's like through you. He wants to do it in worship. When we sing on a Sunday, when we join here on on our services, and our gathering times. He wants to do it on Monday through Saturday. He wants to do it when you're eating around a table and when you're working with coworkers. He wants to use you to show others the goodness of God. And the choice we have is will we actually put on that priestly attitude? Will we become the priests God wants to use to show the world what he's like? It's a choice. It's a decision. Maybe you're in this room and... And you have to make a decision just for the first time to receive that grace. Maybe you're listening and you realize, I don't, I don't know if I've even asked for the grace of God. I don't know if I've asked for salvation. It can begin in a moment right now. A simple moment where you say, God, I want the grace you have for me. Jesus, I, I want to repent of my sin. It just simply means to turn from going my own way. I want to go your way, Jesus. And I want to put on this new title that calls me a royal priest. I want to put on that I belong to your family and that I have a purpose. If that's you this morning, I I would ask you, start to speak it out right where you're at. Whatever words come to your mind, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I want your grace. Jesus, I want to be a royal priesthood. Any of those will work and it begins this relationship with God. For those of us who maybe have already begun that relationship, but we realize today, maybe we haven't been acting like the priests we're supposed to be. (laughs) Maybe we've put on the, the royalty aspect and we understand salvation and that we belong, but we haven't stepped into the call of God in our life. I would ask you begin to pray right now with your own words. God, make me a priest. Jesus, make me a priest. Make me Someone where people will see your goodness. Jesus, I want to become the priest that you've designed for me to be. God, I want to worship you in spirit and truth. Any of those words, whatever comes to your mind, begin to whisper them out. Because God wants to take us to a new place. He wants us to understand who we are in his kingdom. And he has plans and purposes. I'm going to pray over you today and the team's going to lead us in one last song. God, I just thank you for what you're doing. God, I thank you that you have included every one of us into your family. God, that you have paid the price that we just have to receive to take that step and have grace and salvation. But God, I pray that we don't just stop there, that we put on this priestly garment, God, that we would actually act as those who lead others into the presence of God. And that we would model well what it looks like to worship you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.